is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's time for our Lewis and Clark series, The Most Epic Road Trip Ever, that's following Lewis and Clark and their group of men called the Corps of Discovery along their two-and-a-half-year adventure exploring the American West. And here's our own Alex Cortez with our 14th feature on what happened on these exact days in history over 200 years ago. Winter is upon the core of discovery, and they enter the villages of the Mandan Indians in central North Dakota and are forced to stop there for months. The river is freezing up, their boats can't advance, and sitting around in one spot ain't always fun. At least, that's what Joseph Whitehouse concluded early on in the month. Began the works of the fort. All the men at camp occupied their time diligently in building their huts. Nothing extraordinary happened until the 30th day of November. As soon as they started building the fort, then the question became, can the men get rest? Because they're going to need it in the spring. Will there be an adequate food supply? Are are there enough buffalo and elk and deer handy? Uh, Will there be any tension with the native peoples? Will the men be able to find companionship or sexual liaisons with native women? Can they gather enough firewood? Is the climate endurable? We're listening to Clay Jenkinson, the editor of the Lewis and Clark periodical, We Proceeded On. You know, questions of this sort, can they get the boats out of the river before they're damaged by the ice? What sort of reports should they prepare uh, to send back to Washington, D.C. for Jefferson. All of these things occupied their attention, and they're interesting to us, but, they're, but they are not dramatic events. They're really routine, and the men make it clear that they actually like to be moving, that when they were, of course they wanted the rest, but after a couple of days they were restless, and they were eager for some sort of activity. And yet, White House was wrong. Something extraordinary did happen these days. He and the others just didn't know it yet. Here's William Clark. Fourth of November. A Frenchman by name Charvenal, interpreter for the Hadatsa Indians, the Mandan's neighbor, came to see us. He wished we engage him to go on with us as an interpreter, take wives to interpret the snake language. The snake language being the language of the Shoshone Indians, which they expected to come to head with around the Rocky Mountains. And one of Charvenal's two wives, both of which he won in a bet, would become the third most famous member of the expedition, a slave several times over, an Indian, and a female at that's the unlikeliest of combinations. To be above all the enlisted male white men in the American consciousness. Want to take a guess who it is? Well, you better hurry, you better hurry. The woman Charbonneau would bring, who would also become one of the two most historic female Indians in American history next to Pocahontas, is... And he didn't mention at the time that Sakagawi was pregnant. He may not have known that she was pregnant. But even if he did, he's unlikely to have told Lewis and Clark that because it might have been a deal-breaker for them. That's a burden that they 
would not have wanted to shoulder if they'd known about it in advance. Pregnant on a military expedition, whatever. I am more concerned that I just heard the almighty Clay say something like Sakagawea. Have you been drinking, Clay? Sakagawea. This is extremely unsettling. Are we talking about the same person? And are you really saying that all that they taught me in school is a lie? Oh my, that's a that's a minefield. So we don't know when Sakagawea was born or where, but it was probably around 1787 and it was probably just inside Idaho, but we don't know that for sure. And there are protracted and sometimes violent debates about that subject. The Shoshone Indians say that she is one of theirs, born amongst them with the name Sacagawea. Which the Shoshone say means lifter of boats or carrier of burdens. And that ain't an exaggeration. The Indian wives literally did what we'd call the manly duties of lifting things. And the Indian husbands must have been proud enough about this to name their kid after it. And the Shoshone are adamant that this is her actual name and this is how her name should be pronounced. But the Hidatsa Indians say she is one of theirs. Hidatsas have said that she was never Shoshone at all, that she was born Hidatsa, that for some reason she wound up in western Montana or Idaho. She made her way back in a kind of a heroic, epic journey that was helped along by wolves and other forces of spiritual medicine. Whoa. So what's the real deal? Lay it down for us, Clay. Lewis, when he finally noticed her after she saved a number of items from the boats in northwestern North Dakota, finally names something after her and lists her name, writes her name out in the journals for the first time, and does it phonetically, which is good for us, and says her name is sa ka gar we are Sakagar, we are, and he says this means bird woman. So if that's true, and it seems to be true, that's a Hidatsa name. That's not a Shoshone name. It's not Sakajawea. It's Sakagawea or Sakarawea or Sakakawea. And we all know that that's Hidatsa, and it means something like bird woman. Okay, Clay, but who's right? Come on. I'm debating here whether to ask my middle school for a refund. Come on. Lay it on me. It looks something like this. She may have been born Sacagawea amongst the Shoshone, but then when she was captured and taken to the Hidatsa tribe, she may have been acculturated, and her name may have morphed, may have changed from Sacagawea to Sacagawea, so they're very similar. And if one means lifter of burdens and the other means bird woman, uh, that's no great matter. But these are very serious debates that go on between the Hidatsa and the Shoshone and amongst historians and, and linguists. And I've been at events where Shoshone people have shut down the discourse by shouting that her name must not be pronounced Sakagawea. Clay, do you not think it pathetic at all of these Lewis and Clark buffs having a shouting match over this? <laughs> do I think it's pathetic? <laughs> yes and no. It's, um, you know, it's pathetic in that there are so many areas like this, you know, people that think that Lewis was murdered. You know, there is no evidence of any credibility at any level of any sort that Lewis was murdered. And yet there are a wide range of people, 
maybe something involving a majority of Lewis and Clark buffs who would prefer that he was murdered to the fact that he committed suicide and will argue for murder, even though even they know that they have no credible evidence of any sort. We also have Stephen Ambrose's mythology that Lewis and Clark were the best friends who ever lived, and there was never a tense moment between them. You know, we know that's insane and absurd on the face of it. You know, if you've ever been on a camping trip for more than a couple of days, you know that tensions are bound to exist even amongst the best of friends. And we know almost certainly that Sakagawea's name should be pronounced something like Sakagawea. And yet for all of that, for most of American history, she was known as Sacagawea. And there are people today, when I give lectures and, and use the name as Lewis used it, who come up and said, well, I was, I'm not upset by this, but I was, I, all my life I've thought of her as Sacagawea. What happened? And they're a little disappointed that the story that they have absorbed from early childhood or school is somehow now being discredited. And it just proves the tenacity of mythology. There's a book by a man named Lowen called Lies My Teacher Taught Me, and, it, and its thesis is that even though we all know that George Washington didn't chop down the cherry tree, we still teach that. And even teachers who know better say, well, it's no longer, it, it's now discredited that, that George Washington chopped down the cherry tree, but isn't it a great story? And then their students remember the story rather than the disclaimer. And so this is something about the tenacity of myth. And it's also about wishful thinking in American historiography. So we want Sakagawea to be this pristine woman in a spotless deerskin dress who was elegant and never had a bad day and guided Lewis and Clark and proved to be their salvation. And this is just the nature of national mythologies. This is our epic. This, this has the same place for us in many respects that Homer's Odyssey had for the ancient Greeks or Virgil's Aeneid had in Rome. And those stories are seldom really true. They're tidy, and they serve the function of creating a unifying national epic that explores the purpose of that tribe or people. Sakagawea is mentioned four different times in the course journals before they even introduced her name. At first, she was just some nameless Indian woman who might be able to help them. That's how unimportant she was to them at the start. And great job as always, Alex. And a special thanks as always to our Lewis and Clark expert, Clay Jenkinson. And you can learn more about Clay and his work at claygenkinson.com. If you're ever in that part of the world, look him up. No one does better tours. No one knows more about the space. He's also the host of the Thomas Jefferson Radio Hour, a whole weekly show dedicated to Thomas Jefferson. And you bet he deserves it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the most epic road trip ever. Our 14th feature, the Lewis and Clark Expedition.
This is Our American Stories, and every once in a while we want to lighten it up in a segment. We mash together a few light stories. Sometimes they're uplifting stories that we'll mash together. These are light. And recently, our producer Jesse came across a story in the news about a pet squirrel that defended he and his owners from a burglar. Here's that story. In Meridian, Idaho, Adam Pearl walked into his home on Tuesday realized something didn't seem quite right. I came in the front door and, well, I saw snow prints out in the front driveway going to the back of the house. And so I thought something was awry because nobody usually goes through the yard. Pearl was immediately greeted by his pet squirrel named Joey when he got home. But then he started noticing a few doors that would normally be closed were open. After making his way to the back bedroom, his fear was confirmed once he looked at his gun safe. I started looking at it, and I saw the scratches that were around the walking area. Um, and I, at that point, I knew somebody was definitely in here messing around. Pearl then called Meridian Police, and when Officer Ashley Turner came out to take a look, Joey the Squirrel just had to say hello. Um, and during her investigations, uh, Joey had run in the bedroom just screwing around like he always does between her legs and kind of startled her and uh, she says whoa what was that "Ah, don't worry about that that's that's just joey pet squirrel you know turner then asked pearl if joey would bite i said well he usually doesn't bite but you never know because he is a squirrel (laughs) officer turner went on her way only to return a few hours later with some of pearl's stolen belongings and some unbelievable news. She said while she was questioning the individual, uh, he had scratches on his hand. So he, she asked him, so did you get that from the squirrel? And he says, yeah, damn thing kept attacking me. It wouldn't stop until I left. <laughs> Joey the squirrel is now being hailed a hero. Nobody can believe it because who can say they have a squirrel that guards their house, which is crazy. You can't ask for much more than that. He's a pain in the butt, but he's great. (laughs) Pearl said he then thanked his pet squirrel, Joey, by giving him Whoppers candies, his favorite treat. We're still working on the being nice to people part, but maybe I shouldn't work on that too much because he obviously took care of the house. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. I love Whoppers too, Jesse. Yeah. That's a great story. You love those animal stories, don't you? I do. I know. You ever heard anybody about a pet squirrel? I haven't. You'd think they'd bite the hell out of you. <laughs> I mean, I've had squirrels in my house once when I was a kid. They tore the place up. Yeah, they're kind of squirrely. They are squirrely. And now we go to a, well, just a light story right here in our own town. Uh, we're in Oxford, Mississippi. This is flyover country. We're about an hour south of Memphis. Great musical part of the world. Short drive to Nashville, short drive to New Orleans, short drive to Memphis. Does it get any better than that for people who love music? And it's a sports town because it's home of Ole Miss. And that's SEC football and that's SEC everything. College football that is the best kind. And here's a segment that happened on a radio show, a local radio show here in town and around Mississippi called Head to Head. And it's a sports show. And I actually know the guys who do it. They're good guys. And the show is set up to interview former Ole Miss football player Denzel Kamdichie, a big star, a great player. They had him on the line, and we're about to begin what they expected to be, well, just a normal old interview. Let's take a listen and see what happened. 
Temple. He is on your radio this afternoon. Denzel, appreciate uh, a few minutes of your time. How are you? <laughs> Denzel, you there? <laughs> this is not going as well as I had hoped. <laughs> I think he's asleep. But That's better. Phone in his ear. Hey, Denzel, you there? <laughs> okay, this he's is sleep. I don't think this is going to work. No, I don't think it's going to work. It's working perfectly. <laughs> this is great. For a morning great. show, that's gold. <laughs> that is gold. That goes in the that goes in the best of CD. Actually, it's not even a morning show. You'll hear it next. That's oh, what gotcha. that's what they found even funnier about this. It wasn't the morning. <laughs> that is. <laughs> And the host of this radio show, and again, it's head-to-head, and Richard Cross and his pal, well, they didn't know how to respond. This great star is on the air, except, well, he's not on the air. Let's take a listen to their reaction after hearing their guest fell asleep. <sighs> Should I say it? Well, I'm not going to say it. No, don't. Just just let it go. Um, <laughs> Rhino, is he answering when we, as we call back? You're trying. One more I'm time. I'm trying, but I'm, I'm not getting anything. Okay. Okay. Well, let's just move on. Let's not try to work out. Okay. I mean, it's it's early in the day. It's <laughs> of course it is 4:20 p.m. as opposed to. <laughs> no. Um. All right. So, <laughs> where do you even go with that? Oh, man. <laughs> I they just kept them on the line. I would have too. Kept tuning in. I, uh, no, you get the, up the fader exactly. every couple minutes. Exactly. You get the Jeopardy clock going. You do an over/under <laughs> bet on how long he'll be asleep. Get people to call in and scream at him. You could have gone in so oh. many direct. These amateurs. I'd have milked that for an hour. Oh, that's an hour of radio. That's why we love radio. You never know what's going to happen. That's one of the most highly conditioned athletes in America asleep at four thirty in the afternoon for an interview. <laughs> By the way, Denzel Kimdichie later tweeted, quote, I had been up in studio all night wrapping up my music project, and I did fall asleep while on the radio. Well, you know, we, we sort, of, sort of busted on that one. And uh, last but not least, our favorite guy, Stephen Goldberg's dreams. You heard that right. We're going to hear a dude's daydreams. And not just any dude, one of our favorite dudes. Steve is the former chairman of the sociology department at City College. And he is the foremost expert on patriarchy. And a guy who, he daydreams a lot. And now we bring you Steve and his latest daydream. And before we do that, Steve reads us his mandatory disclosure. These are all real daydreams that I have had over the past seven decades. They are not written in the sense that one paces the floor at five in the morning trying to write a daydream about X, Y, or Z. These daydreams all simply arrived fully formed, poppied into my head unexpectedly. That's the wonderful thing about daydreams. They require no talent at all. At least back then, and for all I know to this day, The state of Maine was quite a strange place. For example, the potato was king. School started much later in the year than it did anywhere else uh, so that kids could harvest potatoes. More relevant here, there were plenty of trains, but the trains were only for potatoes. There were no trains for people. For most people, this was an inconvenience, perhaps a major inconvenience. But they had access to planes and cars. 
At least most of them did. But not a little girl named Diana. Diana's parents um, were poor and didn't own a car, nor could they afford plane fare. A train ticket was within reach, but trains were, as mentioned, only for potatoes. For little Diana, the situation was a disaster. See, Diana um, had contracted a, an excruciatingly painful disease, uh, one that, that could be fatal if not treated with a protocol available only um, at a hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. People were sympathetic, but the law was undeniably clear. The trains were only for potatoes. Despite this, a young lawyer took Diana's case pro bono. Uh, though realizing it was in all likelihood hopeless, hopeless. If that were not bad enough, the lawyer soon learned that the case was to be heard by Judge Crockett, a judge known for brutally uh, rigid allegiance to a literal interpretation of the law. The lawyer looked dejected and Diana forlorn as the case lasted but a few minutes, and the judge rendered his decision. Maine law limits the use of trains to potatoes and prohibits their use by human beings. This is clear beyond the possibility of dispute or contradiction. That is the law. All I can add is, she looks like a potato to me. Oh boy. <laughs> These are out there, folks, and we just love them. So when Stephen Goldberg sends us one of his daydreams, we do them. And by the way, I love the pet squirrel named Joey. And I like that he named the pet squirrel named Joey. Just an ordinary war, uh, an ordinary name for an ordinary pet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Just some light stuff. We do it every once in a while. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, OurAmericanNetwork.org, to hear and see all that we do. This is Our American Stories, and we love sharing stories with you, particularly from our loyal listeners. But before we do, and we have a really good one, it's time for Shower Thoughts. Shower Thoughts. <laughs> it's a good thing the Dr. Seuss books come with pictures, because otherwise I'd have no clue what he was talking about. The most suspicious thing you can bring on an airplane is a parachute. Kim Jong-un must really look strange to the people of North Korea since he's the only overweight person in the entire country. <laughs> Hurricanes are becoming so powerful and violent that they should be named after bad guys, not just random names pulled out of thin air. Hurricane Patricia doesn't sound nearly as scary as Hurricane Hitler. When I drive with my left hand, the lives of the people in my car are held by something I can't even write my name with. 
The question, where are you, has probably never been asked in sign language. The two main characters of the show VeggieTales are a tomato and a cucumber. Neither are technically vegetables. The tallest person on Earth has been the same height as every person on Earth at some point in his life. A birth control pill pack is like an advent calendar for a woman's period. I bet giraffes don't even know what farts smell like. If self-driving cars kick in fast enough, women in Saudi Arabia may never be able to drive. The speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. My car is eight years old and just hit 186,000 miles. So it took my car eight years to travel as far as light does in one second. Condoms are one of the most environmentally friendly things invented by man. A single one has the potential to eliminate the carbon emissions of an entire human over the course of their lifetime. What if our use of emojis gradually becomes so extensive that we actually circle back to writing in hieroglyphics? <laughs> what if hieroglyphics are ancient emojis used by the Egyptians? Warm beer and cold coffee are both the same temperature. When you want to make sure a piece of paper doesn't get folded, you put it in something called a folder. I wonder if cats think that we're cleaning our ice cream. The only time I've ever used my panic button on my car keychain is when I accidentally pressed it, causing me to panic. If you're over 30 years old, you are alive before every dog in the world. Shower thoughts. <laughs> well done, Jesse. Well, well done. done. <laughs> and now, as we, to- as we promised... A story from one of our listeners. And today we hear from Stephen Murray, who sent us this deeply personal story. Let's take a listen. My name is Stephen, and uh, I'm going to give you a little detail of how my life has taken a 180, they say. Anyhow, when I was growing up, I was always the young man that was always the last one to be picked because I was fat, and I had no abilities to really do anything in life, and everybody knew that. So when they had uh, everybody line up to be picked, uh, like on a baseball or football team, I was always the last one to be picked. And uh, the last guy that would pick me said, no, nah, I don't want him, you take him. Now, that, that's the type of life that I had for growing up through school and things of that nature. And as I started getting older, um, I got into the drinking and the drugging because that was my friend. It never give me any issues except keep me where where I thought I would be. And then the girls came along because you have the booze and the dope and you thought you had a hold of life. Well, through that time, uh, I knew I knew the truth because my parents always embraced that. I mean, I had a wonderful home life and everything, but I seemed to struggle. And uh, my folks always took me to Sunday school, but I, I don't know. It just didn't, didn't resonate with me. But anyhow, as I grew up, the booze and the dope and the girls always seemed to hang and be part of my life. And I went to school, but I never really learned anything, so to say, that would Im- impact me and allow me to prosper in life. And with that, I, I continued in the booze and the dope. And as I got older, I got into more heavier drugs. And uh, my older brother, Ed, he would grow weed uh, from... 800 to 1,000 plants a year, and he had a really wild lifestyle. 
Well, one day I went over and picked up a, a bag of dope, cocaine, and I was driving home. And I saw my brother in a distance standing with a man who I knew knew Jesus, not religion. He had a relationship with Christ. And as I was going out, I pulled over the side of the road, a little town and rescue there where we lived. And sure enough, he was sharing Jesus with my brother because we used to party together. And as I was listening, my inner man, my spirit, my soul was listening to what this man had to say. My flesh was telling me, let's go to the house because I had the dope. But my inner man was tuning in, and he was hearing the truth. So I embraced my brother and left. And as I got to my home about four or five miles away, as I was pulling into the driveway, I, was, I had that truck, uh, four-wheel drive Bonanza, that had the large gas gauge and the large speedometer. Maybe the older folks would know what I'm talking about. And as I reached down to turn off my ignition, the, the gas gauge was sitting on empty and as I was turning off the ignition, the spirit of the living God started speaking to my inner man, my soul. He says, Stephen, that's your life. It's empty. I'm thinking, wow, how can it be empty? I have a pocket full of dope, and i got money and girls and place to live. I'm doing good, good job. And as I'm sitting there, the evil one, the devil, whoever you want to call him, he starts rolling in the cab of that truck. He says, Stephen, you're a drunk and a druggie and a screw-up. This is your life. Accept it. And just like I'm talking to somebody, I, I heard it. And as I'm sitting there, the spirit of the living God starts speaking to my heart again. It says, Stephen, if you let me into your life, I'm going to get you off empty. But you have to open up the door to your heart. The doorknob's on the inside. And I thought, wow, this is, this is real. So I got out of my truck and I went straight into the restroom at my house, the bathroom, and I took the bag of cocaine out and I flushed it. I knew right then if I didn't make that decision, I would not like the outcome because I knew without a doubt this was the truth. And I got into my refrigerator and started pouring out all the booze and all the beer, got into my cabinets and started pouring everything out that had a hold of me. The pornography went out. Everything went out the back door took the foil off the windows because it was a flop house. I, I liked it dark in there because once you get the partying scene going, you didn't want the sunlight to come up to shut you down. So I took everything and I threw it out the back door and I got on my knees. And when I come back in there, I got on my knees and I said, Lord God, forgive me of my unrighteousness towards you. I'm asking you to take a hold of my life and do something with it. Well, that was 28 years ago. 28 years ago, I was a drunk, druggy, screw-up, didn't care about life, and didn't care what anybody else thought about it. And through that time, I uh, had a woman there that stuck with me, and I, I married her 27 years ago, and she's still with me today. But anyhow, God said he was going to get my life off empty, and he has. Today, being illiterate, which I'm not anymore because I started reading the Bible. And I told God, I said, God, you want me to read your word. You have to teach me to read. And I started learning how to read through the word of God. And now I'm a published author, a published songwriter, the Barnes and Nobles, Amazon.com. And, and um, I've been married, like I said, the same woman for 27 years. I didn't have to explain my past to her because she lived it with me. And she's stuck with me. 
over all these years. And today, people don't laugh at what God's doing in my life because they've seen a drastic change. I'm not going to say my gas gauge is on full, but it's not sitting on empty anymore. And what a great story. Thank you, Stephen, for that. It doesn't get more personal or more beautiful than that. And we want to hear your stories, too. 844-627-8255. About anything that matters to you. Funny, serious, in between. 844-627-8255. This is Our American Stories. our American stories and we love doing this days in history and we love music and this combines both and by the way we love theater it combines all three this day in history the sound of music opened in 1959 and as always our this day in histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College I'm standing in the heart of New York City's Times Square in front of the gorgeous Lundfontein Theater where the sound of music opened on November 16, 1959, and ran for 1,443 performances. The hills are alive with the sound of music, with songs they have sung for a thousand years. The hills do my heart with the sound Now, did the young Austrian nun named Maria really take to the hills surrounding Salzburg to sing spontaneously of her love of music? Did she comfort herself with thoughts of copper kettles and doorbells and sleigh bells and schnitzel with noodles? No, the real-life Maria von Trapp did none of those things. She was indeed a former nun, and she did indeed marry Count George von Trapp and become stepmother to his seven children, but nearly all of the particulars she related in her 1949 memoir, The Story of the Trapp Family Singers, were ignored by the creators of the Broadway musical her memoir inspired. The real life on Trapps did escape Austria as the Nazis came to power, but they didn't flee over the Alps. They got on a train to Italy and then traveled to America where they had a concert tour scheduled. The day after they left, Hitler ordered the Austrian border shut. The Von Trapps then settled in Stowe, Vermont, where they opened the Trapp Family Lodge, which is operational to this day. While the liberties taken by the show's writers and composers caused some consternation to the real Maria Von Trapp and to her stepchildren, those liberties made The Sound of Music a smash success from the very opening night on this day in 1959. With a creative team made up of Broadway legends, writers Howard Lindsay and Russell Krauss, and composers Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein. Add to that a talent as enormously popular and bankable as Mary Martin playing Maria. It was no surprise that The Sound of Music sold $2 million in advance tickets. People continued to flock to this theater despite two negative reviews from the New York Times, like this one that said the show lacked the final exultation that marks the difference between a masterpiece and a well-produced musical entertainment. During her two years as Maria, Mary Martin only missed one show, and due to the design of the two-story set, 
Martin had to run three miles during every show to make her entrances and exits. The original cast recording of The Sound of Music was nearly as popular as the show itself. Recorded just a week after the show's Broadway premiere and released by Columbia Records, the album shot to number one on the Billboard charts and stayed there for 16 weeks, selling upwards of 3 million copies worldwide. The soundtrack featured songs like Do Re Mi. Do a deer, a female deer, pray a drop of golden sun. Me, a name I call myself. Here's my favorite things. Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens. Bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens. Brown paper packages tied up with springs. These are a few of my favorite things. 16 going on 17. I am 16 going on 17. I know that I'm naive. Fellows I meet may tell me I'm sweet and willingly I'll believe. And the team's final collaboration, Edelweiss. Edelweiss. Bless my homeland All these world-renowned songs were introduced right here at the Lundfontein stage in 1959. The Sound of Music was the eighth and final musical written by Rodgers and Hammerstein. But Hammerstein never saw the movie. He died of stomach cancer nine months after the Broadway premiere. The show was made into a film in 1965 and starred Julie Andrews as Maria and Christopher Plummer as the captain. It won five Oscars, including Best Picture and Best Director. The Sound of Music contains more hit songs than any other Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, partly because the film version was the most financially successful film adaptation of a Broadway musical ever made. This day in history, The Sound of Music. So long, farewell, our readers and good night. I hate to go and miss this pretty sight. And it's so hard to interrupt this song. It's my little girl's favorite. We watched this movie, I can't tell you how many times. And I'm looking forward to seeing a great Broadway revival of it soon. It's been a long time. And by the way, in 1959, this play ran for 1,400 three straight performances, which was unheard of. And again, that 1965 film version, which brought this play to the world, five Oscars. And by the way, you were listening to Mary Martin performing there. Mary was the Broadway dom, one of the great Broadway actresses and singer, song, and dance types. She could do it all, Mary. She was 46 when she originated this on Broadway in 1959. And she could not have been too happy when in 1965, at the age of 52, she was bypassed for a younger and, well, more sprite face and voice, that of Julie Andrews. And the rest is history. And we love to bring you our This Days in History, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can get to you with their terrific and free online courses. And my goodness, there are so many of them. Again, go to hillsdale.edu, where they teach all the things that are beautiful in life, all the things that matter in life. And so we leave as we started 
with some music from The Sound of Music, this time from the film soundtrack and Julie Andrews, in 1959 on this day in history, The Sound of Music debuted on Broadway. Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens, brown paper packages tied up with strings, these are a few of my favorite things. Cream-colored ponies and crisp apple strudels Doorbells and sleigh bells and schnitzel with noodles Wild geese that fly with the moon on their wings These are a few of my favorite things Girls in white dresses with blue satin sashes Snowflakes that stay on my nose and eyelashes Silver white winters that melt into springs This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, in 2010, Laura Hillenbrand's Unbroken was released. Many of us know that story from Angelina Jolie's film adaptation of Unbroken, but how much of his story did we really get? The film presented Louis' journey through the Olympics and the trials of war, along with the wretched treatment of the POWs from the Japanese. However, part of the story was left unsaid, one of the most moving and important parts. Based on the biography written by Laura, Unbroken is truly a story of forgiveness. We're going to bring you that full story in Louis Zamperini's own words, which he shared with Harvest Christian Fellowship back in 2011. Born into an Italian immigrant family, Louis faced bullying and torment, but young Louis fought back without hesitation. The kids started teasing me to get me to swear in Italian. Two or three months and I started retaliating and I found out I could whip these guys. And so I was always fighting, getting even. And even the girls in school, when they give me trouble, I'd, I'd take a clove of garlic and chew it and then blow my breath out of them in school. And uh, so my whole life became a life of, of, of getting even. And by the way, Italians face discrimination so many people have. And it impacted and affected Louis. As you can imagine, Louis found plenty of ways to get into trouble as a kid. However, Louis's loving brother Pete knew that he couldn't live the rest of his life that way and used running to right Louis's ways. Well, yeah, I formed a, a little gang and uh, we, in the movie theaters uh, was a dime to get in the movies. So everybody went to the movies on Saturday night and, and we knew who made the beer and the wine and the liquor. So uh, when they went to the movies, we'd get in their house and get the loot and hide it. <laughs> we had a cave out in the trees and uh, we'd hide it there. And then the next day we'd go to the beach and uh, lay on the beach and uh, drink beer or whatever. We had wine, but the lifeguards were like policemen then. And they came down and uh, you know reprimanded us. I worked at a dairy part-time, so I filled the milk bottle full of white paint, left it upside down at night, and then left it in the sun for three or four days. And then we poured our wine or our, or our beer into the milk bottle, and, the, and of course the lifeguards thought we were drinking milk. Well, yeah, my brother knew I had no interest, only gang-related interest, and uh, 
So I'm a great believer in getting young people started in different things. So that when they're bored, they say, hey, let's go play tennis or let's go do this. But I had none, so I just said, hey, let's go do this, and it was the wrong thing. And, uh, and so the police were, they got, it got so bad that when uh, something happened in town, they just parked in front of my house and wait for me to come home. <laughs> and, and like my brother said, he said, when the police car went south, I went north. And so, like a loving brother would, he just tries to channel his brother's energy into, again, this thing called running. And it turns out Louis was good at it, and he kept getting faster and faster. And he was crowned the Torrance Tornado in high school. He set a world interscholastic record for the mile and won a scholarship to USC. He decided to start running the 5,000-meter race and did well, so well that he was invited to the Olympic tryouts. The Olympic committee sent me an invitation to go to New York for the tryouts. But it's funny, because in those days, the Depression, all these athletes are invited when they qualify, but how do you get to New York? Uh, there was no money. We had uh, some people hitchhiked. Uh, a guy took a motorcycle from Seattle all the way there to compete. But uh, my dad worked for the Pacific Electric Red Cars, and uh, he was allowed one pass a year on the Southern Pacific Railway. So I got my round trip, and then I had nothing to wear, no suitcase. And so the merchants in town got together and gave me everything I needed. And they took a little offering around town so I'd have spending money to eat on the train. And then in New York, I had a room with another buddy. Uh, and we ran on the hottest day New York had for about 90 years. And boy, people were dropping like flies. My brother said, well, you're going to run against the world's record holder in a two-mile, John Lash. And I want you to get behind him and just keep your eye on the back of his head. Well, as a kid, a world record holder to me was, oh, it's just unbelievable. And I'm running behind him, and I had a chance to pass him the last lap, but I didn't. I just said, well, how do you pass a world champion? And uh, I waited too late to the last 220, and now he's in the first lane, his buddy's in the second lane behind, and I had to run the third lane around a quarter of a, a half of the track, which put me about 12 yards further to run. And uh, by coming down the home stretch, we ran neck and neck to the tape, and you, you couldn't put a... Uh, I don't think there were a half inch between us. So that qualified me, and I couldn't believe it. I'm on the team, and, and uh, now they took care of me. They put me in a hotel, gave me clothes, paid for everything once you're on the team. And I'll never forget, uh, I just found the card I, I mailed to my mother. We're in this hotel, and I wrote to her and said that, you won't believe it, Mom, but they got a radio in every room. They got a radio in every room. What a voice. What a life. We're celebrating the release of Laura Hillenbrand's remarkable book, Unbroken, in 2010. And we're taking apart Angelina Jolie's movie because, boy, did she miss a lot and leave out a lot from that book and from Louis' story. When we come back, you're going to hear the rest of the story. In 2010, on this day in history, Unbroken was released and as always, our This Day in Histories are always brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all of the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. More of Louis Zamperini's life story after these messages. 
This is Our American Stories, and on this day in history, Laura Hillenbrand's Unbroken was released in 2010. And what a remarkable story of Louis Zamperini she told, and so much of it was left out of the film adaptation. And all of this is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life. Arts, philosophy, history, sports, religion. It's all there. Send your kid there. They're going to get a bang-up education as good as I've ever seen in the country. I happen to teach there a couple of weeks out of the year. I'm a bit biased. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will get to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and check out their terrific online courses. So Louis Zamperini's qualified for the Olympics. He's off in 1936 to the Olympics in Berlin. This is Hitler's big moment, by the way. He gets to show up to the world, the Aryan superiority. And here are these Italian kids. And by the way, Jesse Owens, an African-American, is racing. Big stakes, folks. Big stakes. But Louis didn't do as well as he'd hoped due to some unexpected weight gain somewhere between 12 and 14 pounds. Now, my big problem was with not having been away from home. The only time I ate out, I had a, a, a I think it was a tuna fish sandwich with the olive on it. And that was the only time I ever ate out. I was in a drugstore. Uh, during the Depression, we had to forage for food. We had to go out and pick wild radishes, wild tomatoes, and uh, had to shoot uh, uh, cottontail rabbits for rabbit cacciatore. And... Uh, <laughs> When we ran out of money again, my mother said, go to the, go to the beach room and bring me home four or five abalones. Well, that was poor man's food. Anyway, so I get aboard this ship, and I just, when they start bringing the food on a boat, I couldn't believe it. Not one sweet roll, but five different kinds. My eyes just popped out of my head, and I, I went for the gold, but it was food. And being overweight, I couldn't keep up the pace. But, uh, so the last lap... They, all the great runners were up front. There were seven of them. And then there was a 50-yard gap between them and us. And I was really tired. And at the last lap, my brother said, well, everybody's tired. And he gave me a formula. He said, isn't one minute of pain worth a lifetime of glory? So I spent the whole last lap under the one minute, 56 seconds. And the grandstand people jumped up. You know, they, it was quite a sight, I guess. And uh, I thought, but I came in eighth. But uh, as a result of that, I got an invitation from an officer to see Hitler. And I said, well, I didn't win a gold. He said, well, no, he just wants to see you. So I went over there, and all he said was, the boy with the fast finish. The boy with the fast finish. I mean, imagine he met Adolf Hitler. At this point, Olympic athlete Louis Zamperini still had a lot of troublemaking left in him. So he decided to collect some mementos of his trip overseas. Another thing I enjoyed about the Olympians, uh, they all collect souvenirs to bring home. And uh, I had a lot of childhood training about taking things home. (laughs) So I started my collection on the boat. And then uh, (laughs) in Germany, um, after I competed, about two days later, I went to uh, Berlin with a buddy, and they had what they called beer automats where you put in 20 fennigs and you get beer, but not a cup like his, it's a liter. And that's the smallest beer they had. And uh, we had two beers and I um, got a little frisky and uh, we walked down the street and I saw a limousine pull up in front of the chancellery and Hitler got out and I think it was General Goring, no, not Goring, it was uh, Fritz. 
And uh, they went inside. In the meantime, the guards on the front walk. They meet at the gate, turn about, walk to the corner. So I timed them. And I knew I had plenty of time to get across the street and tear this flag down. But uh, when I got to the flag, it was about a foot higher than I had anticipated, and I couldn't reach it. So the guards started to scream in German, and uh, I, I, I just panicked. I jumped as high as I could and just barely clutched it, ripped it from the, from the uh, pole, and I did what I do best. I started to run. Well, the guards started screaming at me as they ran toward me, and I just started running across the street, and I heard a shot. So one of the guards shot in the air, and then they, I stopped. They came up, and they handled me rather roughly at first till they saw the Olympic insignia and the American flag, and then they were more gentle, and then uh, the guard went in, in the uh, chancellery, talked to, I think he talked to General von Fritz, I, I remember that name when he came out, and then he said, uh, but why did you tear down the swastika? Now, we had two Jewish boys aboard the Olympians. They were in the relay. And he thought I was probably one of them, and I tore the flag down for racial reasons. But I said, no, no, I, I, I just wanted to take the flag home to America to always remind me of the wonderful time I had in your country. 5,000-meter race in less than 70 seconds was impressive. Louis ran his in just 56 he knew that he had what it took to win and was readying himself for the next Olympics. But then they were canceled. The world was at war, and Louis joined the Army Air Corps, now known as the Air Force, and earned a commission as a second lieutenant as a bombardier. And in 1943, Louis and his B-24 crew were on a search and rescue mission over the Pacific when the plane's engines caved and the plane and crew crashed into the water some 850 miles south of Oahu, Hawaii. Well, I, you know, kids ask me, do you ever think about dying? That's a big question the kids ask. And uh, no, I never thought about dying. We just thought about living. And uh, we focused on that. And I had plenty of survival training to make it work. My problem was I was, uh, the pilot and the, and the uh, tail gunner were blown free of the wreckage. Uh, but I was trapped in the waste section. Why? Because the tripod that holds the machine gun up is in front of me, and I hold the life raft in my, in my body. And then just before we hit, I ducked down low, and so I ended up under the tripod with the raft below me, and I was severely and painfully wedged into that tripod, so there's no way I could move. And to make matters worse, the tail snapped off, and the wires are springy wire. They coil up. The wires coiled around me, I'm already trapped hopelessly, and I'm completely entangled in wires, and I thought, well, this is it. I knew I was dead. And uh, now I, I have to laugh when people say, I, I thought I was going to die, and my whole life went before my eyes. You don't have time for your life to pass before your eyes. <laughs> you only have time to say, God, help me. <laughs> and that's what I said in my mind and heart. God help me, I'm dead anyway, so I, my last request. And, uh, and uh, then I, uh, I went down at least 20 feet when my ears popped. Then I was down probably 100, 150 feet when my forehead uh, had a severe pain from the pressure. 
and then I lost consciousness. But just before I did, I said in my heart, God help me. And then I'm conscious again. And this is strange because the first second that I became conscious, I thought, this is the afterlife. <laughs> and and uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't like the Bible said. <laughs> it sure wasn't. Floating out there in the middle of nowhere were Louie and two crewmates from the original crew of 11. Understandably, one of the three men who had survived, he began to panic. But uh, within 30 minutes, the tail gunner panicked and started screaming, and uh, he lost control completely. We're going to die. We're all going to die. And I said, Mac, nobody's going to die. Settle down. He kept screaming, and of course, that wasn't good for the pilot, who lost a lot of blood. And so I tried to use, uh, well, I took psychology in college, so I tried that. Uh, and that didn't work, so then I threatened to report him. I said, we're going to be picked up tomorrow, today, and I'm making a report to the commander. And that didn't work, so I just turned my back on him and came around with my knuckles, and I cracked him across the face, <laughs> knocked him on his fanny, and uh, he was completely content. Completely content. And by the way, listen to the man, listen to the spirit. And by the way, it's going to get worse, this story, before it gets better. We promise you it's going to get a lot worse. When we come back, my goodness, what Louis Zamperini endures, this is just the beginning. This is Lee Habib. This is our American stories. And again, you're hearing Louis Zamperini's story from Louis Zamperini himself. His life chronicled in this spectacular book by Laura Hillenbrand. And Laura Hillenbrand wrote not just about Louis, but another wounded, another wounded hero, Seabiscuit. Seabiscuit was her first book. And if you remember that book, it was about wounded and broken people. The horse was broken, the trainer was broken, the owner was broken, and the jockey was broken. What a story. And this is a broken man, and he had good reason to be broken. What unbroke Louis? Well, you'll hear that too. This is our American stories. The life of Louis Zamperini after these messages. Our American Stories, and we continue with our celebration of Laura Hillenbrand's release of Unbroken in 2010, chronicling the life of Louis Zamperini. And as you might imagine, surviving on the open ocean was no easy thing. They got by on rainwater, small fish, and birds while dealing with shark attacks, storms, and Japanese machine gun fire. After 47 days, only Russell Allen Phillips and Louis survived. They drifted on the land, and they thought, I guess, that that was good news. But it ended up even in being even worse news, because they drifted right into the hands of the Japanese who threw the two of them into a prison camp. 
They were both half the weight that they were when they boarded that plane. Laura Heldenbrand's book describes Louis's first night at the prison camp. Quote, Louis looked down at his body, legs that had sprung through a four-minute, 12-second mile over bright sand on that last morning he spent in Hawaii, were now useless. The vibrant, generous body that he had trained with such vigilance had shrunk until only bones remained, draped in yellow skin, crawling with parasites. All I see, he thought, is a dead body breathing. Louis dissolved into hard, racking weeping. He muffled his sobs so the guard wouldn't hear him. He thought the days on the raft and the weight loss were terrible, but soon in the prison camp, true hell began. The situation for the next 43 days on land was far worse than being on the life raft. So I, I used to pray there, God, get me out on that raft. I want to die out there where it's clean and beautiful sky. But here we were in this filth, uh, constant permanent diarrhea, and then uh, oh, all kinds of things happened. They injected us, and a submarines launched there, and at 80 men would come ashore and, and uh, you know, tease us and, and spit on us and throw rock at us. And, but um, I'd say the most disappointing thing was when we went before the interrogation panel, uh, six naval officers in white uniforms with gold braid, medals, all that. And uh, before the interrogation started, one of the officers said, uh, Mr. Zamperini, or Lieutenant Zamperini, when you were entering USC in 1936, I was graduating. And this guy said he was a Trojan, and, th- and that was hard for me to believe. Uh, he was the most obnoxious of the six. I just couldn't figure it out. I finally had to come to the conclusion that he was a, a third-year transfer from UCLA. <laughs> <laughs> and you're from Southern California. That'll make you laugh. Uh, UCLA and USC have quite a rivalry. It's like Alabama and Auburn's uh, Army and Navy, so on and so forth. At this point, Louis had only been kept alive due to his celebrity as an Olympian. The Japanese had plans for him. Yeah, well, it all started when I was put into Ofuna. That's a secret camp. And it's for high-profile Prisoners, people that they, like Pappy Boynton was shot down Friday, he's there Saturday. He's got current information. And now the head interrogator there went to SC with me. And uh, I asked him, I, I said, I'm not a high-profile prisoner. 47 days on a raft, 43 days in a, in a cell, a month getting to, to, to Yokohama. And he wouldn't tell me anything. But after a year and a month, I'm transferred to headquarters, Omori, and uh, I found out the reason why. It takes a year and a month to be declared dead. And they were waiting for me to be declared dead so they could condemn America. And they, uh, the first propaganda they had on the radio, and I think it's in the book, uh, and then the, the purpose was, because on Kwajalein, we were, our day of execution was set. But another officer came there and said, it would better serve Japan's purpose to send Louis on to Tokyo to make propaganda broadcast. So that saved our life. But when they, uh, I made this broadcast to my parents, that was just a ruse, the first step. And uh, the second time I went to the radio, they provided me with the script that they wrote, and it was propaganda. 
And they were subtle, but then that's, that's the way they get you. You think, well, it's not that bad. And the next time it's a little stronger, and I refuse to read it. And that had consequences. That really made the Japanese mad. After Louis refused to read Japanese propaganda aimed at demoralizing Americans, his hell got even worse. Louis was moved around from various POW camps, all of them horrible. But the worst experience of all was due to one man, Mutsuhiro Watanabe, also known as the Bird. Now, the Bird was mean enough as he was, but I think they gave him orders to make my life miserable. So I would accept a better life of a cafeteria food in Radio Tokyo in a hotel room. I met uh, two Australians and an American that were doing that, and when I shook their hands, they couldn't look in my eyes. And I think they were sending me a message. There's no way I could do it. I mean, I'd have to live with that the rest of my life. And so I was sent to a slave labor camp, and I thought, thank God I'm getting away from Mr. Shiro Watanabe, the bird. But then he was transferred to another camp. There's 90 camps in Japan proper. Well, he's at one of those camps. Then two weeks later, I'm transferred to another camp. I'm told to stand at attention and face the guard shack, and I did. And the door opens and out steps Watanabe. And I'm on my knees buckled, and I thought, that's useless, useless. And um, I start all over again. And so he worked me over right, right to the end. But he knew the war was over two days before we did. And so he's, he, the bird flew the coop, yeah. He <laughs> and the bird, well... He beat Louis and the men relentlessly day after day. At one point, he made Louis hold a beam above his head as punishment for going to the doctor without permission. Louis held that beam for 37 minutes, much longer than his weak, dysentery-wracked body should have been able to. The bird was furious as he realized that Louis had transformed these tortures into opportunities to show defiance. The bird ran at Louis and punched him in the stomach, causing the beam to fall on his head. But the bird wasn't just picking on Louis. After some enlisted men stole fish because they were starving, the bird came up with a cruel punishment. But it wasn't just cruel. It was an effort to strain the bond between the men themselves. The bird called out the thieves and officers and ordered the enlisted men to punch them for punishment and humiliation. So he was asking Americans to beat up their fellow Americans. Now a passage from the book Unbroken. Quote, The enlisted men had no choice. At first, some hit softly, but they were immediately clubbed by the guards, then set upon by the bird. For the first few punches, Louis stayed upright. Soon his legs wavered and collapsed. He pulled himself up, but fell again with the next punch and the next. Eventually, he blacked out. When he woke, the bird forced the men to resume punching him, barking, next, next, next. In Louis's whirling mind, the voice began to sound like the tramping of feet. The sun sank. For two hours, the beating went on. The victims had to be carried to the barracks. Louis's face was so swollen that for several days, he could barely open his mouth. By Wade's estimation, each man had been punched in the face some 220 times. In his efforts to humiliate the officers and sow division among the men, the bird was satisfied. 
But Louis later said that the bird failed because the Americans were satisfied too, quote, preferring to be hit by our own men than anyone Japanese. And when we come back, celebrating the release of Laura Hillenbrand's Unbroken on this day in history in 2010. This is Our American Story. is Our American Stories, and we continue with our celebration of Laura Hillenbrand's book, Unbroken, released on this day in history in 2010. With the end of the war came the end of Louis's time as a prisoner of war, but Louis came home with a lot of scars, visible and invisible. Many POWs came home, as Hillenbrand describes, torn down men. The struggle of post-war life was to restore their dignity and find a way to see the world as something other than menacing blackness, she wrote. For Louis, back in America, he met Cynthia Applewhite in March of 1946, and after two weeks, convinced her to marry him. They were married in May of 46. Cynthia soon began to see the effects that that war had on her husband, especially the marks left by the bird. But the nightmare started in prison, because every day when he would punish me, I'd clench my fist, and he knew I wanted to hit him, and he said, if I draw my sword, I must use it. So I had nightmares there all the way home. And I, there was never a night I didn't dream about getting this guy. And uh, so, but when I woke up in a cold sweat uh, with my hand around my wife's throat, that really scared me. And of course, it scared her. <laughs> and, uh, and then she, we were, a young couple in the apartment came to uh, our apartment and knocked on the door and started telling us about a young evangelist coming to L.A. And he started to quote scripture. And boy, that, that hit me. I, I said, hey, I'm out of here. And my, my wife listens. And when Billy came, they talked her into going down with them. And she, in the meantime, she'd already filed for a divorce. And then uh, but when she came home and tried to get me to go down, I fought her. Uh, but then she said something that softened me up. She said, because of my conversion... I'm not going to get a divorce. Well, that really softened me up a bit, and so she was able to persuade me to go down here, Billy. But then again, he was quoting Scripture, and that really <laughs> hit me between the eyes. And I said, I don't need anybody to tell me I'm a sinner. I know I am. And so I got mad, pulled her on home. Uh, but uh, the next day, she's all over me again, and, and I said, okay, okay, I'll go back on one condition. When he says every head bowed and every eye closed, we're out. And so back again we went, and Billy's finishing the sermon, and I said, let's go. And then he said something like, um, when people come to the end of their rope and they have no else to turn, they turn to God. And I thought, yeah, that's what I did. And I, on the raft and prison camp, all the prisoners were praying about the same prayer, get me home alive to my family, and I'll seek you and serve you. Well, he got me home alive, and I didn't keep my promise, and that really hit me between the eyes so instead of leaving the tent, I went back to the prayer room and made a confession of my faith in Christ. And that Billy, by the way, was Billy Graham. And after that tent meeting in Los Angeles, Louis began to see religion in a much clearer light. 
and his life began to change. When this happened, I when I received Christ as my Savior, I knew while I was still on my knees that I was a different person, and I didn't know what happened. And then later, of course, as I began to study the Scriptures, I realized that uh, when I invited Christ into my life, uh, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new person. That was the answer. But at that time, I didn't know it. I just knew something phenomenal happened. And I had no, not the slightest hate for the bird anymore. I loved everybody. And uh, so the first miracle was uh, uh, not having the nightmares, or I should say my conversion, not having nightmares. And then the third miracle was uh, the Bible. I could never understand it. In the Pacific, they gave us olive drab Bibles, and nobody could understand it. So we just threw it in our footlocker. So I took uh, the, my, my Olive Drab New Testament, I walked up into the Hollywood Park, and I started to read it, and now it made sense. And uh, when I got to the, uh, the, uh, the crucifixion on the cross and uh, the treatment that uh, God the Son went through, the, and the torture and the humiliation, uh, I started to cry. I never cried in my life, but uh, nobody could make me cry as a kid. I was just defiant, but this did it. If it had been for the war or Watanabe and the post-traumatic stress, that's what drove me to Christ. When I got on my knees and accepted Christ, what a relief to know that I'd passed from one life into another. God had used Billy Graham to bring the gospel to Louis Zamperini in 1946. And about 10 years later, Billy had Louis share what God had done in his life at one of his meetings. Maybe many of you remember the headlines in 1936, some of you older people do, because Louis Zamberini was representing the United States in the World Olympics in Berlin. He was the great Olympic miler, and he was the man that climbed up the Reichstag and pulled Hitler's flag right down from the top. And the whole world gasped, and it became an international incident. During the war, Louis Zamberini was an American war hero. He was 47 days on a life raft floating around in the Pacific. And he began to drink when he came home, and he was confused and frustrated and mixed up in his life. And he too wandered into that tent on Washington and Hill in Los Angeles and found Christ as his Savior. And tonight, he is the director of the Victory Boys Camp for Juvenile Delinquents in Los Angeles, giving his full life now to try to rehabilitate juvenile delinquents and lead them to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lewis, we're delighted to have you with us tonight. Thank you, Billy. It was after the war and with about $10,000 in back pay from two and a half years in prison camp and also uh, collecting my life insurance for being dead, <laughs> I became uh, extremely uh, selfish, cynical, and greedy until the uh, wind was finally let out of my sails. I lost everything that I possessed outside of my wife and little girl. And it was then that my wife was able to persuade me into going down to that meeting at Washington and Hill Street in Los Angeles where I heard the gospel from Billy Graham's lips. And there as I sat in the meeting, I heard Billy Graham when he stated that God the Son the Lord Jesus Christ could forgive me for my sins, and that if I put my trust in him, I could have eternal life. And so I went forward in that meeting, 
I ask God to forgive me for not having kept many promises I made on the raft. I acknowledge to God that I was a sinner. I ask the Lord Jesus Christ to come into my heart and save me. And, of course, he did. Since then, I have had an unquenchable joy of working with these uh, wayward boys and uh, also preaching to them the same gospel that I heard nine years ago. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lewis. And that's the part that's left out of Angelina Jolie's movie, Unbroken. In fact, the title of her movie should have been Broken, because what unbroke Louis was Jesus Christ. In one of his last interviews with Hugh Hewitt, he said two significant things happened in his life. One, I crashed into an ocean. Two, I crashed into Jesus Christ. And Angelina Jolie left out that second half. Laura Hildenbrand did not. Why Angelina Jolie did that, we will never know. After his conversion, Louis tried to get in contact with the bird to let him know that he had forgiven him. The bird, sadist that he is, refused. Louis wrote a letter. To Mr. Cheryl Watanabe, as a result of my prisoner of war experience under your unwanted and unreasonable punishment, my post-war life became a nightmare. It was not so much due to the pain and the suffering as it was to the tension of stress and humiliation that caused me to hate with a vengeance. Under your discipline, my rights not only as a prisoner but also as a human being were stripped from me. It was a struggle to maintain enough dignity and hope to live until the war's end. The post-war nightmares caused my life to crumble, but thanks to a confrontation with God through the evangelist Billy Graham, I committed my life to Christ. Love replaced the hate I had for you. Christ said, forgive your enemies and pray for them. As you probably know, I returned to Japan in 1952 and was graciously allowed to address all the Japanese war criminals at Tsugamo Prison. I asked them about you and was told that you probably had committed harikiri, which I was sad to hear. At that moment, like the others, I also forgave you and now would hope that you would also become a Christian. And by the way, Harry Carey is ritual suicide. The other Japanese war criminals thought the bird might have done that, but he didn't. In fact, CBS tracked him down prior to the 1998 Winter Olympics. The bird was unrepentant and refused to see Louis Zamperini. In 1998, Zamperini finally got to participate in the Olympics in Japan. That's what had brought him there. He carried the torch through the town where he had been a POW 50-plus years before as adoring crowds lined the streets. CBS reporter Jim Nass asked him about that day and the graciousness of the Japanese people who smothered with flowers a POW statue near the place where he and so many GIs had been tortured. Quote, Their graciousness and compassion and love was unbelievable, he told Nance. It was more than compensated for my past years in Japan more than 50 years ago. Louis Zamperini could have chosen a life of self-pity and self-hate. He could have chosen to remain a victim. Who would have blamed him? But instead, he chose life. And it was his faith that gave him his love for life. He gave up skateboarding at the age of 81. At 91, he reluctantly gave up skiing. 
He was named Grand Marshal of the 2015 Rose Parade in Pasadena. To the end, Louis Zamperini was teaching us how not only to survive, but how to live. Louis Zamperini's story, Laura Hillenbrand's story, the release of Unbroken on this day in history in 2010, here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 